I'm Debbie Bleacher, senior producer of Ray Brown's Talkin' Birds. Sometimes we have so much great material for our show that we can't fit it all on the air. So we share tidbits with you as podcast extras. Today's podcast extra is about Hog Island Audubon Camp off the coast of Bremen, Maine. Hog Island has historically been a destination for seeing hundreds of bird species that stop over on the Atlantic Migration Flyway. However, it's more than just a place to go birding. Established in 1936, it's also one of America's first environmental education centers. In June of 2018, I attended a program at Hog Island called Hands-On Bird Science. We didn't just watch birds, we counted them for a nationwide community science project. We prowled the island at dawn to record birdsong. We even rolled up our sleeves and turned dead birds into research specimens for future visitors. My week at Hog Island showed me that any person can contribute to a body of knowledge that will help all birds everywhere. Here's the piece. Enjoy. When most of us think of birders, we think of older folks skulking around the woods wearing binoculars and floppy hats. The population at Hog Island Audubon Camp is somewhat different. Sure, there are birders of retirement age. Mostly, they're the volunteers who keep the place running. But there are also young adults, teens, families. Everyone comes to Hog Island to study birds and to decode what birds can tell us about the health of our planet. Common eider. Yes. Surf scoter. Yes. Hog Island Audubon's programs are a week long. Each evening, everyone gathers to list the day's bird sightings. A typical week sightings can reach well over 100 species. This program is hands-on bird science. Attendees from all over North America and beyond come to study with experts who love what they do. Take, for instance, Dr. Brooke Bateman. Uh, I'm Dr. Brooke Bateman. She's the senior climate scientist with National Audubon. I'm also the director of Climate Watch, which is our new community science program. A nationwide effort to track shifts in bird populations over time. A lot of people care about birds, and even if you're not quite sure about climate science or, or how climate change is going to affect things, once you bring birds into the mix, people want to sign up right away. Participants in Hands-On Bird Science have the opportunity to learn to do point counts for Climate Watch and other community science projects. It's a wonderful way to get people involved in such an important thing that's occurring in our planet right now. To count a lot of birds in a lot of places, you need a lot of people. What you don't need is special knowledge or equipment. A coordinator tells you which birds to count and where to go. After your count, the coordinator uploads your data to Climate Watch, where it joins data from hundreds of other point counts. It's kind of like completing a quilt square, but with birds. We're trying to see how birds are responding to climate change by looking at these models that show where their ranges are going to be shifting and then going out and ground truthing it and saying, okay, well, how are the birds really responding? That's pretty exciting from a scientific point of view because nobody's doing that at this U.S. wide scale. So we're actually testing climate change as it's happening and letting the birds tell us. Participant Patrick Carney explains how it works. So what we do for the point counts is you count birds within a 100-meter radius, and the target species in the habitat we were doing were um, white-breasted nuthatches and red-breasted nuthatches. The procedure is, is you choose um, 12 points within the count area and do a point count at, at each one, and each point count lasts five minutes. So what we would do is essentially we would just stop in the forest, set a timer for five minutes, and make note of it if we heard or saw any um, white-breasted or red-breasted nuthatches. This is what a point count sounds like. You'll hear instructor Angelica Nelson starting us off, 
and then Patrick describing what happened. So we will be just focusing on nuthatches, but you can count any other birds that you hear and, and also put those on, on the list. And we'll be there for five minutes. So once we get there, then we should also not talk or anything. We'll just kind of like have our ears open and try to pick up some nuthatches. So that's really the whole idea, so that you kind of focus on one specific bird group and really try to, to hear whether you hear any of those. Or see, obviously, too. So, all right, is everybody good on yeah. that? We heard the red-breasted nuthatch during the second point count. We were standing right on a trail in the forest. There was a nice clearing so that we had a good area for hearing sounds and as well as seeing the birds. And so we could hear the red-breasted nuthatch coming from off in the forest and its call sounded like three little honks. Very cute. <laughs> So it's actually really cool when you get a data point that's not zero during your point count. We heard our target species in one out of four counts. We uploaded our point count data, even the zeros, to a database called eBird. And then we were done. That's right. We contributed to a national science project just by standing still and paying attention. Why do seagulls fly over the sea? Because if they flew over the bay, they'd be bagels. Hog Island is at the eastern edge of the eastern time zone, so the birds wake up early. People who attend hands-on bird science can roll out of bed and record them before breakfast. Dr. Angelica Nelson, curator of the Borer Laboratory of Bioacoustics at Ohio State University, set us up with microphones, headphones, and recorders, and sent us out into the woods. Hello? Hello. I hope I'm recording. Gain's very low. That's me getting acquainted with the equipment. And yes, that was a song sparrow at the very end. The first bird song recording ever made was of a song sparrow by ornithologist Arthur Allen in 1929. How do I know? I looked it up in the sound archive of the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Sound archives such as Cornell's and Dr. Nelson's bioacoustics lab preserve recordings for research and artistic use. Bird songs change over time, especially as habitats change. Therefore, recordings can reveal slow-moving trends. Dr. Nelson elaborates. I think sound recordings really matter because they're just a big part of our environment. And it's maybe some part that we're not really that aware of. Because as humans, we remember things visually. We take photographs wherever we go, and then we take those home and look at them. But we never think so much about the sounds of our environment. And so that's why I think it's really important to preserve them and then also document to other people in the future how things have changed and yeah, how we change the environment. Participant Ileana Gomez describes what recording was like for her. When I first put the headphones, it was quite surprising because I wear these good headphones also at home to listen music. But this music, it's filtered, so it's not the same. So then you hear the air, you hear a lot of sounds. For some reason, mosquitoes are attacking the microphone. It was very moving because it's like the words and how they express themselves, if they're breathing or if they're calling. It's learning the language of, of the birds. It's not the language and it's the language of nature, right? <laughs> Perfect. Although I think that may be a squirrel. How did they know the bird was a thief? He was a robin. Wild birds don't come when you call them. So if you want to identify an individual bird for research, you need to catch it and place a band on its leg. You record the band number, plus when and where you caught the bird, 
how old it is, and a few other measurements. Then you release the bird. Maybe you'll find it again, and maybe you won't. But the droplets of data you get during those few minutes contribute to a mighty river of research. This was the case for master bird bander Sandy Lockerman, who was one of our instructors. Here's her story about a study of the migratory patterns of northern saw-wet owls, which yielded a surprising result. I started out in banding 22 years ago with a project in central Pennsylvania trying to discover whether northern saw-wet owls migrated through Pennsylvania. The literature said they went down the coast. October and November is when we band up in the mountains at night from dusk until midnight. And our first year we had 73. And since then now we've had a total of 10,000 northern saw-wet owls that we have caught and banded migrating through central Pennsylvania. So obviously they do migrate through. You have to get a permit to become a bird bander. To do that, you have to train with certified master banders such as Sandy. Different kinds of birds require different permits because you have to learn a wide variety of handling skills. For instance, if all you know about is hummingbirds and someone hands you an eagle, you could end up with some broken bones. Banding is stressful for birds, so there has to be a sound scientific reason. Instructor Anthony Hill explains. The banding lab is restricting the number of permits because their philosophy is if you have a scientific question and in their opinion it can be answered without the use of capturing or banding birds, they will not give you a permit. And I feel that that's appropriate because I think that there is a small amount of time there where you're invading the bird's life and you have to be sure that that's of value before the permit will be issued. So what's it like to band a bird? Here's participant Lindsay McNamara banding a hairy woodpecker under the guidance of Sandy Lockerman. Back and go underneath the wing. She's a tough one to start out with. Now you want to do the beak. A hairy woodpecker is about the same height as an American robin, but the shape is a little bit different. It's more streamlined. Casey, who's another young birder here, wanted to band the chick, and I decided to take on the mama. She was great. I was very nervous because she is a mom, and so I really wanted to make sure that the bird was as comfortable as possible. I was never afraid of the bird. I was afraid that I was going to do something wrong and have the bird be more stressed, and so I was really trying to be as good to the bird as possible, but the instructors at Hog Island are excellent and their expertise is endless. And so I knew that they were constantly watching the bird and if at any point we just had to let her go, that's what we would have done. Yeah, that looks good. She's gonna go. Go baby. Bye. We're watching for the bird to be closing its eyes or gaping its bill or fluffing its feathers. My feeling and those of the people I work with is that if we see that happening, we're releasing the bird immediately because no piece of data is worth stressing that bird unnecessarily. The fact that I have a common yellow throat in my hand does not mean that I need to get all those data from that bird if I see the bird is not doing well. Anthony Hill says he can band a bird in under a minute if he has a competent person recording the measurements. Working quickly while being gentle is the order of the day. When you are done with a banding project, you send your data to the banding lab at the U.S. Geological Survey. Sometimes, another researcher will find one of your birds elsewhere in the world, and then you'll know two points in its life story. But most of the time, your single encounter is all you get, so you try to make the most of it. 
I think about banding. It's a brief encounter between two individuals. We have a bird and we have me. And I do my best to make the most out of that encounter in terms of benefit for the natural world. I always feel that within the time frame that I have of wanting to get the bird back to its own life very quickly, I do my best to get as much information as I can while that opportunity exists. Because I may never encounter this bird again, but I may gather some piece of information from this bird, which in the future in some large database that someone may access 100 years from now may be of value. If you think you might be interested in bird banding, find a station near you and see what kind of volunteers they need. And here's some advice. Don't wear buttons on your sleeves. Okay. I know I learned that quickly. Don't wear button shirts when you're... I have a Swiss Army knife. I guess no, cut your arm off? Or? Yeah, I think we'll have to cut my arm off. I've got the bird. <laughs> you got the bird, so you can... Yeah, it's all... What do you give a sick bird? <laughs> Preparing study skins for museums is an art most people don't think about. But future scientists will need to study today's birds in order to learn, well, we don't know what they'll want to learn. People now are doing research on everything from the bugs on birds' feathers to what they ate before they migrated. Courtney Brennan is collections manager for the ornithology department at the Cleveland Museum of Natural History. She taught us the specimen prep process. For that purpose, she brought a whole bunch of frozen bird specimens which had been sent to her at the museum. Yes, for her job, Courtney receives dead birds in the mail. And she wants us to know. None of these birds are being killed here at the island. That's not not what's going on. Almost, I would say, 99% of these birds are ending up in the freezer because they're flying into buildings and they're colliding into the windows. So the windows reflect the sky or the trees. And we can't expect birds to understand what a window is. They've been evolving on this planet for millions of years. We're the ones that erected all the buildings and put up all the windows. By the way, the next time you mail someone a dead bird, do include a note about where and when you found it. Birds without that context are useless as museum specimens. To make a study skin, you remove every part of the bird that will decay, then you stuff the skin with cotton to make it look like a bird again. If the thought of taking apart a dead bird makes you go, whoa, not me, listen to Courtney. So the first time I prepared a specimen, I was an undergrad, and I thought I would have a hard time emotionally even just holding a dead bird in my hands. But when you're there at the desk and you've got the dead bird right in front of you, you kind of can separate the emotions of your love for birds with the motivation of wanting to make a really good quality specimen. Participant Casey Walters describes her experience making a study skin. When I first walked into the lab, I saw the tray tables set up and ready for everybody to sit down and begin with their specimens. On my tray was a scalpel, had a pair of scissors, and a pile of corn cob dust. The corn cob dust was to absorb any of the bird fluids while you're doing the skinning to preserve the feathers and make it a cleaner process. When I sat down to do it, I was very nervous. I wasn't sure that I was going to be able to get through the whole process but I was excited for a new experience. My oven bird had a white chest with black spots on it and olive green wings. The bird was a little smaller than a sparrow. It was cold. And here's Courtney with a pair of scissors. So the first thing I'm gonna do is I'm gonna disconnect the tail without cutting the tail off. So usually I do this with round tip scissors so I know I'm not gonna break through. Okay, and then I'm gonna start pushing the skin over the butt of the bird. And this bird's really fat and that makes the skin a little bit rippier. So what I do is I find where the legs connect with the body. So you can see a little white notch right there. I can slip my scissors underneath there 
and cut that leg. So I'm gonna do it again on the other side. I find that little joint, slip my scissors underneath, disconnect the tail. It can take a while to remove the fat and muscle from the specimen to prevent decay. When you're done, you stuff the skin. Now I'm gonna make this bird look absolutely adorable again. Of course, KC was doing this for the first time, so her results were a little different. By the time I was done skinning the specimen, the skin was not in very good shape. So we only kept wing specimens and the instructor helped me with the first wing and identifying where to clip it and what needed to be removed so that it would not decay. So the final step in preserving the wings was to pin them on a piece of cardboard and we did it so that somebody couldn't look at each individual wing or each individual feather on the wing. And then I actually did a sketch to draw in the rest of the bird so it looked like it was in flight still. Before we left Hog Island, all of us who prepared wings signed them and put the date on them. All of these birds are a voucher in time and space, and that's a very powerful thing in science. So in 200 years, folks can look at the collection here at Hog Island and say, oh, there was northern flickers here, and this camper prepared it. Okay. When should you buy a bird? When it's going cheap. When there's free time during hands-on bird science, Hog Island is a beautiful place to relax. Everyone has their favorite spot. My favorite spot on Hog Island is just off of the Queen Mary lab where there's two big Adirondack chairs. And when I'm not teaching or on duty, I can slide right in that chair and look out over the bay. I just love the trails on Hog Island because they're so squishy. There's like moss everywhere and you just feel like walking almost on clouds. My favorite spot on the island is actually a little cove located just a bit south of the Queen Mary cabin where I'm staying. In addition to the birds being really great right there, when the tide goes out in that spot, it creates some really cool tide pools where you can look for crabs and starfish and that kind of thing. And there's also great views of the sunrise there if you wake up at four in the morning. Here's Eva Matthews Lark. Yes, that's her real name. She's Hog Island's program manager, so she probably needs to relax more than anybody. When I look at birds, the sense of meaning is that I'm a part of the world. Because I think often humans detach ourselves as being animals, detach ourselves in the natural world. We also get very caught up in our little daily lives and the stress and the responsibilities. And for me, when I'm looking at birds, some of that gets shed. And it gives a greater meaning to me as being a part of that natural world. Hands-on bird science is a great way to gain a deep understanding of how connected birds are to all other life on Earth. Here's a way to think about it. When you love someone, you look them in the eyes. Studying birds is a way to look our planet in the eyes. If you'd like to get more information on Hog Island Audubon's programs, you can find them on the web at hogisland.audubon.org. That's hogisland.audubon.org. How does a bird with a broken wing manage to land safely? with its sparrow shoot. Uh, no, that's not very good. Hang on. That's all for this podcast extra. Thanks for listening. This is Debbie Bleacher for Ray Brown's Talkin' Birds.